Blog Talk Radio. It's your forum to discuss what matters to you and to me. Individual expressions are boring and they can create nothing but a monologue. Who wants to know all about just me? I want to know about you. So if you want to tell it like it is, the empire is where it's going to go down. Check Facebook or my website for show times and days as those days and times may change. For more information, contact me at EmpressCooperDavison at gmail.com or by my website at www.TheEmpress.com for when the empire speaks. Empress, listen. Hello, Empire. Let's get it cracking. 
Yes, I have made it. I have made it. I have made it to Thursday. The kids are out of school. The mama can relax just a little bit, but we're going to have a discussion tonight on the empire. And tonight's topic, of course, is about jail, prison, being in the big house. And with me, I have a special guest, a new guest to the empire. I'm hoping not the last time. I hope he enjoys it. And if not, he, I'm sure he'll tell me. Uh, should I say Attorney Everett West? Are you there and can you hear me? I am here. Good evening. How are you? I'm doing great. Yay! We got you on the Empire. Listen, I have been trying to get an attorney that I felt like was worthy of being on the Empire because, you know, we for real over here. We are just so for real. No, this is not 95.7. No, this is not 107.7. But I can give Jason and Sly a run for their money. I guarantee you. And when I do, I will say that I had Everett West on my show. <laughs> so I'm going to say this. Tonight we are going to talk about the whole Everything that I needed to know about the prison system, um, everything, every question that I had, and this all came about because I was actually just like everybody else probably watching the news, looking at sentencing, seeing how some sentences seemed a little extreme and how there seemed to be, for me, a growing population of people Going to jail. I mean, they're they're sending teachers to jail, regular folk to jail. Uh, I don't see a lot of news about like major busts or major uh, this or that on the news. It's just like regular people are going to jail, and I kind of felt like there had to be something behind it. And you know, every time I put my mind to it, I can find out a little bit more, or it just comes to me. That's just how it comes to me. I'm a little bit of a Cleo when it comes to uh, information just coming to me. And, and out of that, just curiosity and my watching that, a story about the Philadelphia school closing came across my desk. And the, the headline read this, Philadelphia schools closing while a new $400 million prison is under construction. Could it be true? Is this what is happening in the rest of the world? So I had to do some research, and I've been out of school for a lot of years, but I love learning. And I learned that the top three states uh, with the highest incarceration rates, do you do you know what those are, Attorney West? Just just wondering, do you know the top three states in the United States with the highest incarceration rates are? Is California one? Yes, it is. <laughs> yes. How about that? Uh, probably, probably our most popular cities. Uh, probably New York. Uh, probably, mm-hmm. probably Philadelphia is what I would say. Okay. Okay. Well, actually, the number one. <laughs> this is just a statistical report from the Department of Corrections, and it's from I get a lot of my statistics from the CDC, so I trust them whether or not they're completely true. But they always have a date. Of, All right. Now, of, I bet, is, is Alabama going to? Is Alabama going to? Alabama is number one. Alabama, according to uh, a statistical report released, that the Alabama Department of Corrections uh, currently incarcerates at at a maximum of 26,000 inmates a year where its capacity only accounts for about 13,000 inmates. So we are almost doubling uh capacity. Uh so we're uh, we're at 190% capacity, which is ridiculous. Whereas California was second 
uh, it said that according to the California Department of Rehabilitation, the weekly populations, the state incarcerates about 155,000 inmates where their capacity is is supposed to have been made for 81,000. So they're at 184 percent capacity. And then Massachusetts was number three. It is the it was in uh, it said it was in fierce competition with another state, but it doesn't actually list it here. It says that they have a total incarceration inmate count of eleven thousand three hundred and twenty seven, where the the jails or prisons themselves were built for seven thousand people. Right. So they're at a hundred and four like okay, first of all we're we're not not sending people to jail. As a matter of fact, we're sending more and more people to jail. And so I'm going to give you a B on that first quiz. But do you know who is in jail? Could you guess the age range and race of persons nationally that uh, actually uh, holds the number one spot in occupancy in, in prison? You probably have an age of 17 to 24 predominantly African-American males. Actually, according to, and see, this was shocking to me, too, because this is not what they show on the news. This is not what they say. The Actually, this was updated on Saturday, April the 25th of this year by the CDC, and according to it, the statistics of the inmates in jail are overwhelmingly white, 59.1% of inmates and that's on both the state and federal level, are not African-American. Actually, we are second at 37.5%, and then the Asians and the Native Americans, they don't get in trouble. It's like one and a half to 1.9%. And the age range was like prime real time, like 26 to 35 years old are the average ages of people who are incarcerated at this time. So I, I, I just was wondering how a minority of people – 13% of the world uh, are the United States, let's say. 13% of the United States could actually hold that much of a capacity in jail. Like, we we are in we in there. Like, we got numbers in there, and I'm just trying to understand this. So I wanted to hear from the mouth of an expert, and that is why I have asked you to come on tonight. And so I, just to begin, if you could tell us a little bit about your background yourself, because, I, you know, I, they tell me sometimes I just grab anybody I can talk to. But, no, I actually did a little research I had two other attorneys, fine attorneys here in Birmingham, Alabama, say this is who you want to talk to because that's what he does. That's, that's that's what he does. So when you answer back, I was really excited to know that I'm just not blowing, I'm not blowing smoke, and neither are you. So if you could just introduce yourself to our listening guest. I am Everett West. I am a practicing attorney in the Birmingham area. I practice all over the state. I have handled a number of high-profile cases throughout the state of Alabama. I handle about 25 capital murder cases, thousands or hundreds of of, uh, of criminal cases uh, within the city of Birmingham and in other parts of the state, federally and state. Cases. Okay. And, and if you would, because, see, that was one of the most ahas for me because I'm so dumb, and I, I think that I'm kind of smart a little bit. I just think that I'm the average Joe when it comes to what people know and don't know about our legal and our judicial system. I did not know there was a difference between state 
and federal, you know, significance with regard to time and that sort of thing. What is the difference between having a state charge of, of I guess, criminality and a federal charge? What's the difference between the two? Because you say you practice the both. Yeah. Generally, the, the federal courts have to have some federal nexus in order to bring you in, into their court. And a common term that they use is interstate commerce. So use it when you have a case. And what that means basically is crossing state lines. So if you have a case that involves something that crosses state lines, uh, a lot of times the federal uh, courts or federal prosecutors have an op- has the uh, has the right to uh, investigate and charge on those types of cases. Some examples of that would be money wire fraud because you can you can fraudulently wire money from one state to to another, or if it's some kind of money laundering crime when you're mailing when you're mailing uh, funds or documents concerning funds from one state to the other, or if it involves, for instance, uh, violating a constitutional issues, like a number of police officers are brought into federal court for violating the civil rights of individuals. And a lot of times police officers are charged with uh, excessive force, and the federal federal courts will, will generally handle some of those cases. Now, there are some cases where the state and federal, you know, either court could, could, or either prosecutor could prosecute and try those cases. But a lot of times the uh, federal courts allow the states to handle certain cases and, and, and they do not intervene. But then there are some instances where the state is more, where the federal government is more interested in certain types of cases. Federal government can charge folks with murder, you know, as a as an example. And uh, the the Boston bomber was just uh, tried and sentenced federally uh, in Boston during the Boston Marathon. Uh, mm-hmm. But you know that that was just sort of a, 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 a there was sort of a national outcry in that particular mm-hmm. case, and and it was you know, as a result of terrorism by, by these two brothers. But in most cases, the state, you know, will handle, you know, murder cases and capital murder cases, and the federal court uh, never intervenes. I think there's a case here in Birmingham where a gentleman, I can't remember his name right now, uh, committed a bank robbery at a Wachovia bank over in the Bessemer area, and he is being tried in federal court. And the state has chosen... Uh, not to to pursue charges at this point. Uh, they can, but they just have not, and, and you know, they just don't want to waste resources. You know, when it looks like federal government's going to take care of that particular case. Now I know that I, you know, I've I watched I watch and just like everybody else, and I recognize sometimes when they are. Um, prosecuting, it just seems like to me that it's more heavy of a weighted charge when you have someone charged with a federal charge, if I'm saying that right, if you're being federally charged rather than charged by the state, and that it could be, like you said, it could be 
maybe the same issue, or are there particular things like, no, this is a federal type of deal versus – because I know, like, when I think about jail or incarceration in prison, I think real just to the end, like murder. I think about taking somebody else's life, and once you get charged, you know, everybody that can get you gets a bite at you. Or is that the truth of other types of charges like drugs or, like you said, money laundering and that sort of thing? You know, like like I I mean, I've, I work uh, as a defense lawyer in the federal courts and in the criminal court uh, in Jefferson County and, and throughout the state of Alabama. And it seems like the federal government in the northern district of uh, Alabama are more interested in cases. Sometimes they go after uh, felons in possession of firearms. They go after cases dealing with theft at post office with that with thefts related to uh things being mailed, mortgage fraud, you know, in a white collar unit, they they will go after violation of civil rights by police officers. Yeah, those are just the type of cases they seem seem to be more interested in. If, if there's a uh, a, a large distribution Ring the, the federal government seems to be interested in those types of cases, but on simple possession, the state generally handles those types of cases. Low-profile bank robbery cases, the state may handle those types of cases. Uh, uh, I, you know, and you know, a lot of times federal prosecutors are appointed at the by the President of the United States, and, and federal prosecutors serve at President's leisure. So that changes, you know, depending on who the president is. When when Bush was in, the Republican, he had Alice Martin as his federal mm-hmm. prosecutor, and then when President Obama won, then Joyce Vance was appointed by President Obama and, and then mm-hmm. confirmed by the Senate as a federal prosecutor, so she's been there for eight years. So sometimes federal prosecutors focus on different things as well. Alice Martin mm-hmm. focused a lot, in my opinion, on felons in possession of guns and, and that type of thing. And and George Vance focuses on some of those cases also, but doesn't seem to be as, as much as uh, the previous federal prosecutor did. Just, just based on and my since, observation. Now, since you said that the federal prosecutor kind of, well, actually is uh, appointed by the president, you say, is that it is true right. to, is, is it true too that in alignment with that appointment, you would want also judges and other persons of the law to be in alignment with that particular uh, position? I mean, I know, I mean, to me, see, I'm not a political person per se. It's almost a must that you understand where people's, uh, uh, where where they lie with regard to their associations because you can kind of see the picture of what's going to be the focus. Like everybody has a platform. Every, everybody does. I don't care whether you're in law enforcement, in legal medicine, whatever you practice, you have to have 
a platform. You may not know that you're practicing on that, but I think with regard to legal issues and political views, it's almost like that's how you get in the places that you get. So would you say that um, there's a way to manipulate the outcome of, say, a charge by positioning yourself in alignment with, you know, people who are, like, on your team? Is that how it happens, or does it just so happen to work that way? I don't totally understand your question, but let me say this. Uh, Okay. Federal judges are also appointed by presidents, and Uh once they are appointed and confirmed, they, they have the right to serve for the rest of their lives. They get life lifetime appointments. So if a Republican if a Republican president appoints a judge and they tend to, to appoint more conservative judges, then you know, they're on the bench for life. And if the uh a Democratic president appoints a judge and you know he may they generally uh appoint more liberal type judges then, you know, that judge is on the bench for life. So, you know, I don't know if there's a whole lot of manipulation that that the defendants in criminal cases are randomly assigned to judges. Um, And then we we come in as defense lawyers and we sort of know the tendencies of the different judges and we look at evidence and go through discovery and try to try to advise our clients as to the best course depending on, you know, what the evidence what we believe the evidence will show and what we think, you know, we can we can show the jury. Um conversely back over here back back on the state side and you know just just to just to show the difference. Uh Mm -hmm. the the district attorney who is the state Chief Law Enforcement in Jefferson County or in any county in Alabama, they are elected by the voters, and mm-hmm. the judges are elected by the voters. So I do think the, the local citizens of Jefferson County or any other county in Alabama have more of an ability to dictate what type of prosecutor they want in their county and what type of uh, what type of judge they want in their uh-huh. in their county. But it's the same situation for the lawyer. We know the tendencies of, of the judges and we we uh comport within the law and try to try to resolve our clients' cases in the best way. Okay, so I, I wanna say this. I I love lawyers. <laughs> I love the lawyers. Actually, I never had anything criminal come to me. Uh, I have been in divorce court, and I understand it's a different type of law. Um, uh, and we're going to do a show on that, too, and I'm hoping I'm going to be able um, to to do that uh, soon because a lot of people always have something to say about divorce, and particularly the men. And, of course, tonight it, 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 you can't help but say this is a focus on men being incarcerated. And with regard to everything that we've 
uh, you've already said about the differences between state and federal. Now, all, all of it is about the law. All of it is, uh, in, in its essence, about being sentenced to a particular crime of some type, um, being uh, judged by a jury of your peers, and then having to serve time. Now, I was told, because I don't know, I really don't know, and this, I felt kind of dumb being schooled about this. I've had a conversation this evening with uh, Dr. Uh, Rick Wallace about it, and then with one of my friends who him, he himself had served time um, for what he said was just his, it was his first possession, and he served a year where he had been charged 10 to, 10 to 20 for a first-time offense with um, possession of cocaine and uh, the intent to distribute. Now, do you, as a prosecutor, feel like there are certain crimes that should not be punishable by law but maybe are being re reinforced? Because, you know, this whole big marijuana uprising, like everybody wants to smoke weed. I, I don't get that. Like, first of all, it's just like a personal choice, I think. But, like, if you are in a state that doesn't have a free weed law, you could actually go to jail for this. And uh, one of my Facebook friends who is uh, who calls himself the people's uh, professor or the people's, I can't even think of it right now, but he, he, he stated a case about a man who's in New York jail right now who was on a charge with um, a significant amount of weed back 10 years ago who is still serving time for a weed charge, and, like, now we have states that actually are, like, le they selling weed, like, like legally, through the government. It's taxed. Uh, they got people who are – go ahead. Let's talk about that a little bit. Um, in Alabama, we have simple possession cases such as marijuana, which can be a misdemeanor or a felony, and then we have uh, an possession of some other uncontrolled substance such as heroin or cocaine. Generally, the range of punishment on those types of cases are would be a year and a day to 10 years. That's a Class C felony, a low-level felony. And in most instances, uh, you won't go to prison on the first offense for a simple possession case. In Jefferson County, we also have what we call a drug court where, you know, nine times out of ten, you know, you can have those cases Dismiss, you know, if you don't have a significant uh, prior history, uh, mm -hmm. criminal history, that is. So, you know, a few years ago also, the, the legislatures have created what we call the sentencing guidelines in Alabama uh, mm -hmm. because they kind of, they saw the problem with prison over overcrowdedness and that, and thought some of the sentences for some of the nonviolent offenses, drug offenses, property offenses were too long. So uh -huh. now the the courts have, have you know, these are presumptive sentencing guidelines and the courts have uh -huh. to go by those guidelines and sentencing folks. And a lot of times on the first offense of possession of cocaine, if convicted, uh, uh -huh. The maximum amount of time you're going to get is 13 months. But you, the judge, will put you on probation, you know, on a case like that. Now, more serious cases would be the distribution of drugs. That would be selling, giving away, you know, things things of that sort. Now, that's Class B selling. It ranges 
felony. The range of punishment on that case is two to twenty years on the regular statute. But uh, you know, if and and, and you know, this is true on the simple possession cases, which are class C felony. Uh, you know, that may be in be be enhanced depending on your criminal history again, whether or not you had one, two, or three prior fel or or more prior felonies. Uh, so that that goes into play, and no two defendant situation is exactly the same. So I mean, I listened to you talk about an example of a guy who thought he received a lot of time for distribution of drugs, but I don't know. You know, we don't know what his prior history was, or if he had three or more felonies, and you get into a whole different category like that, where you could end up on the class B felony uh, in prison for life. Mm-hmm. So that that plays a part in that as well, but you are I correct. Would. I mean, I'm listening to you. The trend is changing uh, specifically, you know, especially with uh, marijuana, where more more okay. states are legalizing it for medic- medicinal purposes mostly. And uh, you know, I wonder in time will there be a way to expunge these old marijuana convictions? But it's not right now in Alabama, but we do know that the trend is is changing on some of that. And, you know, we're just waiting to see what happens in Alabama in the future on some of these, on some of these marijuana cases. Now, it's interesting that you say medicinal because I don't, I just don't buy it. You know, I've done that show too. I do, I'm a nurse. By, that's, that's what I do by profession. I've worked since I graduated in the ICU areas. And I'm not going to speak for the masses, but I have, out of taking care of people from 1999 to, to till today, um, had one patient, one, one patient who used marijuana for medicinal purposes. They were a cancer patient. They were in pill form. They were not smoking it. And nine out of the other thousands of patients that I did help take care of who were under the influence, it was just recreational. And to me, I think uh, we can spin it to say that this is for medicinal purposes, but, you know, the same effect that you get, the effect, because I've never smoked before, I don't condone it, I just think that it's just what people want to do, and you shouldn't criminalize it because it doesn't do as much damage as, say, alcohol. I've also been on the unit where I've taken care of patients who were going into DTs, and we had a order, a prescriptive order for a case of beer. And instead of a meal plate coming up for that patient, you get a case of, uh, I think it was Bud Light is what we used. That was in Mobile, Alabama when I worked at the medical center over there. And it, it blew my mind because treatment for some of these things that we're incarcerating people for is the exact thing they're in jail for. Like people who are drug addicts will be drug addicts, and they're going to come out, and they're going to continue to be drug addicts. But before I get too long-winded, there are people just blowing up on the line wanting to speak and possibly ask questions of you. And I identify you guys by the last four digits of your phone number. So if you hear 
First of all, I hope you know the last four numbers of your phone that you're calling <laughs> in on because it's kind of difficult. You won't believe how many people call in they don't know the last four digits of their phone number. Um, and we're going to ask because the phone lines are kind of full and we want to uh, give everybody opportunity to try to limit your question to uh, a few minutes. And if you would like to pose that to myself, which I'm not the expert, Wes is the expert tonight. 5770, are you there and can you hear me? Five seven seven zero. The last four digits of your phone number. Can you hear me? Okay, he hung up. Whoever that was, they hung right up because they realized they were on the air. So we'll go just to the next number. Five seven nine five. Five seven nine five. Are you there? And can you hear me? Hey, how you doing? I'm doing doing great. well. Yep. How are you? All right, this is Timothy. You know, I'll be checking you out on your uh, Facebook. You'll be making um, quiet comments. I'll be looking at you be at work. You don't get in trouble. You know that? <laughs> do you have a question for our guest tonight? <laughs> yes, I do. Um, what's going on? How you doing? Doing well. How are you, sir? I'm all right. I can't complain. Uh, I'm originally from uh, Trinidad, Tobago, but I moved to South Central California. Um, why is it that the court of law doesn't like to go back on, like to resolve certain cases or what happened way, way back in the days, you know, to fix, you know, to fix the problem? Because you still have certain people that's in jail for nothing. I have an aunt that's in Detroit, and she's been locked up for a long, long, long period of time and they keep denying her sentence. I don't understand. And we've been writing letters to the judge, but the judge acts like he don't want to respond. What can Uh, we do to get the judge to listen? Well, let me explain this here. First of all, the legislators create the laws down down in Montgomery, if you're in the state of Alabama. So, and judges follow the law. And you know, sometimes there are cases where people are sentenced and sentenced in jail for a long period of time or may have been given a long sentence by a judge who is no longer on the bench. Uh, but the judge loses, a circuit court judge at the trial level loses jurisdiction of that case after 30 days. After 30 days, the judge loses jurisdiction, 31st day, and asks the judge to reconsider this sentence by statute, by what the legislatures have put in the law in Alabama. They cannot do it. So um, you can call your trial judge all day long, but if, you know, if this, if, if if the inmate has been in jail for more than 30 days and then they didn't appeal after 42 days and went on appeal, then there's nothing the trial uh, judge can do. In that particular instance, you know, I don't know what the sentence is. I don't know if they were served a life without parole. If they served with life without parole, that, that means, you know, they're just in jail, uh, you know, and, and, and until they pass away. Um, but, you know, the only other thing is to work with the parole board, have that inmate to try to improve themselves while they're in prison by taking 
classes and trades and, and showing uh, the, the Board of Pardons and Parole that, you know, they would be a productive citizen if released from prison. So, okay. you know, that that's your best course at this point is to write letters to the Board of Pardons and Parole and and uh, try try to assist with them being paroled uh, early based on good behavior and some of the courses and one of the things that they've done in prison to rehabilitate rehabilitate themselves. Okay, our next call is zero two three nine. Are you there? Can you hear me? Do you have a question for myself or for our attorney Everett West? I would like to. Um... I would like to speak on the recidivism rate for Alabama prisoners. Could you repeat that question, Sharon, for me? I can hear you louder. Okay, I think he's saying that he wants uh, to understand better why there's such a high recidivism rate of uh, persons who are incarcerated over and over in the state of Alabama, I think, in particular. Is that what you're asking? No, actually, I... Want to speak on this? I'm not asking a question. I wanted to make a statement concerning. Okay, go ahead. Yes. Well, he says he wants to make a he wants to make a statement, and then ever once he finishes with with his statement, if you could just follow up. Okay. Sure. Uh, I have uh, personally concerned time 27 years, and uh, I know that the system is really broke. Um, a lot of the programs are watered down. There are nothing real in the programs to help benefit a lot of the people that are incarcerated. And for a person that's serving life without, there's really nothing. You know, um, as you were saying about the court losing jurisdiction, where well, that's, that's to a certain extent it depends on, you know, um, the nature of a person's crime or what have you. And sometimes there are jurisdictional issues that come the person later on gains. Um, some relief on, but I think that people in society should be concerned about the recidivism rate and asking the question, why is such a high recidivism rate? And I think the answer lies in that the system itself is broken. You know, we look at the inmates, the prisoners, the people returning back to prison when they should. I think that people need to pay a little bit more close attention to the system itself. It may need rehabilitation. That I think that I, I think that's a good point. Um, Everett, did you want to answer to the recidivism point that he had? I don't. I don't think there's there's one answer to that question. I think it's a number of things that contribute to to recidivism. Uh, you know, I think it's families. You know, the, the structure of the home uh, makes a big difference early on in an individual's life. Uh, there there can be church. That can be education, so your school system. Uh, that can be what prison you go to in the event that you end up in prison. Uh, it could be the type of programs that they have in prison. It could be how you, you know, how you cooperate and and participate in programs while in prison. You know, attitude. Uh, so, so it's just not one thing that that contributes to recidivism, uh, but you know, you know, I think the key to people being 
me personally, I think the key to being people being successful is is you know uh, having strong family support and and education is is, is a major factor. So uh, you know, I think we kind of hit on it a little bit earlier. You know, when our legislators are are building more prisons in some states and closing schools, and and that's the opposite of of what we ought to be doing to try to uh, lower our prison rate. And some people believe that there there's a huge conspiracy to uh, to keep keep certain folks down. So you know they 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 don't care about school systems. Uh, Getting getting much better. So, but but it's not one one thing. It, it's a it's a number of different different things that are going on, and um, so I, I don't think there's one answer. Okay, twenty five ninety nine. Are you there? Can you hear me? Yes, I'm here. I can hear you. Okay. Do you have a question for myself or for our guest, Attorney Everett West? I mean, well, it's really not a question. I guess it's kind of like a answer to um, a response to the things he said and that the other caller um, said okay. based about the recidivism rate also. Um, I mean, you can't it, – it's going to be recidiv- – the recidivism rate is high. It's going to continue to be high. It's not going to change. It's actually going to get worse because you have to look at why. If prison is meant to correct, there needs to be programs in prison. If if, if prison is meant to correct, Mm -hmm. the things that the people that run prison, they should be doing their job correctly. We got too many, uh, we got, for instance, like um, St. Clair, example. We have prisons like this uh, that's ran by the guard that have stabbings every week, rapes, murders once every month, two, three months, sometimes back-to-back every week. Um, a lot of things go on, but no, but people on the outside are not concerned with what's happening in, in there. And it's causing more of a problem because you got guys that's doing that time, you understand, with these different things going on, being done to them by the administration. No one on the outside is caring. What you think going to happen when they make parole and hit the street? The same thing is shown again. The I don't care attitude. And it's not on that inmate. It's on the people. You understand? Why did you go to prison first? Find out why. Who was missing out the gap? So when you go to prison, it's still the exact same thing. And I can speak because I've been. I went when I was 19 years old. On, my, on the first charge of trafficking cocaine, which the law in Alabama calls it trafficking cocaine, but it's really possession of a certain amount of cocaine. Because when you first hear the word trafficking, what do that mean to you? Um, what what would be the definition of tra- trafficking to you, um, host? To which host? The myself you, or the host, to you, no, yourself? You. you. When you hear oh, the word trafficking, because he know he he, he know what he's gonna know what I'm talking about. But when you get trafficked, what, what do you think? When I, when I 
when I hear trafficking, I think that you actually have uh, the ability to move it from one place to another. No, maybe or that you. No, no, that's not trafficking. No. Okay. I went to tra- I went yeah. for cocaine trafficking, and in Alabama, trafficking means to possess a certain amount of whatever you have. That is correct. Wow. And wow. and with that, and that blow my mind. I mean, because I didn't, you know, we didn't know the laws. When we, we, no, not an excuse, but we didn't know the laws. But that within itself should say a whole lot to people, and people can't see it. Mm-hmm. If you can take a, if, if, if the people that make laws and control them, if you can take a word that already has a definition, and you can recreate the definition of that word to be what you want it to be, then you know we have a problem. Mm-hmm. What well, do you have to say to that, uh, Attorney West? You know, we talked about that a little bit earlier. I mean, that, he's, a, he's right. I mean, the the legislators make these laws, and that's how the how the laws reading. As another example, if you have more than two pounds of marijuana, you are charged with trafficking, even though you may have two pounds of marijuana for personal use. Um, also, I, I mean, I had another little case where uh, an individual was charged with trafficking for having two pounds of marijuana that he was growing in a little little uh, patch in his backyard. And they they weigh the dirt, the root, the the <laughs> the, the leaf. You know, they weigh all of that. And and I went and researched the law and. You know, everything they pick up, they can put it on the scale, and if it's more than two pounds, the dirt with the marijuana uh, plant uh, can can bring you a charge of traffic, trafficking. So, you know, and a lot of times, you know, uh, this technicality is, is catching folks. And, you know, this, this guy's, you know, is probably just growing marijuana for personal use, but because he had that certain amount, uh, he, was, he was charged with trafficking. And this is, again, something where if you want the laws changed, uh-huh. uh, you know, we just had this situation in Ferguson and South Carolina and, and Maryland and other places. We, we don't have to get up off our, our butts as citizens and go out and vote and, and make change and not just sit there and allow uh, things to happen when we can control it by our vote as a people. Okay. Uh, 4175, are you there? Can you hear me? Yes, I'm here. I just got on, so I'm listening. Okay, you're listening, and we're talking with Attorney Everett West about NCIS. What did I say? That's right, Everett West, W-E-S-S. Everett. Everett West, and I think I want you to, uh, if I get into some trouble, I need representation. And the thing is, don't you think that it's kind of hard to know until after you've been in trouble? Like, to me, I equate my specialty of expertise uh, as nursing. Like, can't nobody really tell me how to mix up potassium. I know how to do that. Like, that's just what I do. So when I see it mixed 
improperly or I see I see the effects of it mixed improperly, then I know that there's a problem. And I think that's the same thing. Like, And people complain about their doctors. They complain about their prescriptions, and they complain about, you know, oh, health care costs too much. But when you understand how it comes together, it is very – uh, self-exponential, do you not think it's the same thing with the law? I mean, because how am I supposed to know that that's not what trafficking means? Because I don't, I didn't, I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, I know ignorance of the law is not going to keep me out of jail if they say I'm trafficking. I'm just going to have to take this. You said, you, you said, you said a mouthful of that. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the law, the law doesn't, you know, uh, excuse you if you didn't know two pounds or more marijuana is trafficking. Uh, it just looks at, you know, did you know that this marijuana was in your backyard and did you have the intent to have it in your backyard and, and you know, did it weigh two pounds? And if, if it meets the law, then the prosecutor can charge and and you could you can become a defender. Uh, seven one one zero. Are you there? Can you hear me? Yes, I'm here. How's everybody? Doing fine. How are you? That's great. I don't necessarily have a question. I just wanted to speak on the prison system in general. Um, I just wanted to say that you know the prison industry is basically a tool to make money. Period. Point blank. It. I mean, I, I spoke to you, I private messaged you, I don't know if you remember, well, you should remember, it was like yesterday or something, and I, I was did. telling you that, yes, and I was telling you about, you know, a little bit about the situation, and um, they basically use as much as, they basically use the inmates in many different forms, for instance, to make phone calls that cost money, Um, when you go visit them and you paying three, four dollars for a, a a hot dog that will cost you two dollars in the supermarket that it costs you money when you have to um take your trips up there it costs you money so basically they're not only using the inmates they're also using the families as well to make money and it's just really sad i think the the system needs to be to be fixed i mean they're not really doing anything to help these people get back on their feet when they, you know, get out. It's just basically you get out, you have nowhere to turn. Society already sees you as a criminal. They don't want you. And what do you do? Nobody wants to help you get a job. You go back. So that's more money for them. And I think they want to keep more people because, let's face it, out here in New York, all the jails are upstate. So basically, if... You know, you go upstate and you close the jails. These people be working at Walmart because there's no jobs. So this is their way of living. And it's just terrible. Attorney West? I have seen some of what she is talking about. Uh, they, they do have phone cars, which have a very high rate per minute. And, and you have to mm -hmm. use those numbers to dial out to dial your family and again the family usually ends up paying for that because uh the inmate does, doesn't have a job and you know they have to buy items from certain vendors you know for certain prices uh when you put money in a, mach 
machine on the on the books. I think a percentage of that uh, goes to goes to someone. So a lot of that is going going on. And something we talked about a little bit earlier is, you know, even in Alabama, the prisons are there are more inmates than than the prisons were designed for. So you know, if if you have that situation. You know, you run into things like the previous caller talked about. How can you have enough rehabilitated classes? How, how effective are those classes and programs and and, okay. and and other things so that you don't have this high recidivism in the state of Alabama? So there are a lot of problems. We have some serious problems. A lot of this, a lot of money to money to fund prison comes out of the the general fund. And the Alabama legislators are trying to find ways to cut spending. So, you know, things are being cut back even more at prisons, even though we have overcrowded prisons. Courts are being, uh, you know, funding for courts are being cut back. Funding for the clerk's office, offices is being cut. So, you know, we're... We have a big problem unless we find some other way to to fund the prison system, or we need to go back and look at ways of uh, not incarcerating so many folks on some of these nonviolent offenses, such as you know possession cases, you know maybe some theft of property cases where the individual could pay restitution or. Or, or work off, you know, what what they destroy and that type of thing. Yeah. I, so, I was speaking, uh, my uh, the second guest that's going to be calling in in just a little bit, bit Dr. Rick Wallace is going to talk about that part of it because I, I didn't know. I just didn't know. I had another of my Facebook friends tell me, and you wouldn't believe what some of the things that people will tell you. And and I know this for sure. This happened to be a, a guy that would have graduated high school with me, but because of charges, he just got out of jail maybe about five years ago. He served 20 years. He served 20 years for a murder charge, and he explained to me that, when you're removed from the general population of being free as a non-felon, you're actually reinstitutionalized into a system that is really a whole other world. And he spoke about the same things the young lady was just talking about, how just to get a bar, an extra bar of soap or an extra blanket or to get just something to eat outside of what is actually issued to you, is a major major business like there are it's being privatized uh I didn't know that public uh there are, there's the ability now for private prisons to actually be existing and us thinking that it's really the state and it's not they're being run by other systems of bodies that actually go in and make money off of the off of the prison system and say, for instance, if the state is going to get paid by the government or the the federal prison is going to be paid by the government $40,000 a person 
in jail, there's almost an incentive to keep that person in jail. There's an incentive to keep that money coming and would explain some of the overcrowding. Now, do you think that that's a far-fetched type of thinking as a prosecutor, or do you think it just so happens that the laws are a little bit too lax to, and, and has included more people than in jail that than should be in jail? What, what do you think, uh, Attorney Wayne? I, it may be may be politics. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. politicians, you know, campaign and they go and say that they're going to be tough on crime, and and people like that. I mean, they don't want crime crime in their neighborhood, and as a result of of that, then you know, we run into some of these problems that that we're discussing, and. You know, it it causes societal problems, but you know, at the same time, the voters will continue to vote, and understandably, why? I mean, I understand why politicians that's going to be tough on crime. Now, if this politician came out and said, you know, I want to want to let all the prisoners out, then you know that guy's not going to win. So. just have that as a part of politics and you know a lot of these politicians have to introduce laws and bills to to uh show their constituency that they're doing what they said they were gonna do. And so so we're in this in this downward spiral and I don't we're gonna get out of it in time. Now, there are some crimes where people, you know, can commit and are convicted of that they should be in prison for a long time. But if we can find a way to do something differently on some of these nonviolent offenses, you know, that, that would be great. And I think our legislators have done some of that with the sentencing guidelines that's been in effect a few years here in Alabama. So, so they've been looking at some of that. So, uh, okay. you know, I think it's getting well, a little, little bit, little, little bit better as far as the sentencing is concerned. But you know, the problems with education and individuals being able to find jobs where they can earn a decent living, you know, contributes to to a lot of these folks getting in trouble over and over again as well. Well, we're going to take a quick commercial break, and then we're going to come back with Bishop Rick Wallace because he has a lot to say about this. He's actually written a book about it, and we'll hopefully talk about that as well. Um, had a long and a great conversation with him this evening about this very topic, and some of what our uh, – female caller just a few minutes ago spoke to, it is big business. And if we don't realize that that's what it is, we're just lying to ourselves. Be right back. Listen, have you been right at the point of ready? Perfect shoes, perfect dress, perfect hair, perfect makeup, and you look a fool. Well, we're going to stop all that right now. Kevin Foster is the person for you. Aside from him being able to travel to you, being known for his white tape series, he offers a unique experience very, very inexpensive. It'll be worth the money that you spend. Prices start at $125. If you would like an appointment with Kevin, call 770-407-9025 to set an appointment. Tell him that the Emperor sent you. 
It's Instagram, Facebook, or on KFOS Photography. Tell them the Empress sent you. Listen, we are back. No quick clap. Yeah. Listen, I have been speaking about and referencing a couple of doctors. One um, is on the line with me, Dr. Rick Wallace, who is going to bring us some other knowledge. But I have been referencing Dr. Boyce Watkins, who calls himself the people's prophet. I still can't get it out. But he he speaks so uh, passionately. He's a self-employed man. And see, I think when you – on your own and you have your own say about things, you can speak in a whole different tone, which is very similar to the way Bishop Rick Wallace, who I hope can hear me, speaks, because when he talks, it's just like, you can tell he don't work for nobody because he's saying some stuff that us regular folks would not say, and it doesn't matter what the topic is, whether it's sex, religion, and tonight we're talking about the uh, incarceration issue that we have with we brown and black people. Dr. Wallace, are you there? Uh, yes, I am. Thank you so much. Let me give you a little bit of applause because I appreciate you coming um, and talking with us. And I'm not sure how much of the earlier show we were talking with Attorney Everett West. He is still on the line with us. And we were talking from the legal, legal aspect of it, and everybody spoke to the injustices. And I think sometimes it falls on a deaf ear with regard to uh, when people say, you know, I'm not guilty or I got too much time. You know, I think the expectation of people who have never been incarcerated think that you just got what you deserve. But it, on the on the flip side of that, Some of what's happening is just absolutely unbelievable. We talked about numbers this evening, and we talked about statistics that are actually getting worse. And and we were speaking originally just about the males, but women, we catching up, okay? I mean, it's sad to say I didn't pull those statistics because it's just I'm scared to actually see how big the statistic is with regard to women as well, women of color. And, of course, they're they're separating us out by race with, with CDC statistics. But when you look at it as a black and white issue, uh, the, the numbers speak for themselves. It's an overwhelming majority of brown and black people who are in jail. For those of you who don't know Bishop, please introduce yourself to the Empire once again, sir. Um, I, you know, uh, I'm a person that, you know, you, you've already introduced me, so I'm not exa- know exactly what um, you, you want me to uh, say about myself, but I, uh, I'm a person that's passionate about uh, my people. I'm a person that uh, unapologetically loves my that love my people. Uh, I fight for my people. I speak for my people. I work with my people, um, and I to engage every aspect of life with my people in mind. I attempt to represent them even when I'm not necessarily involved in something directly with them because. I understand the power of that. And this particular issue tonight is something that is uh, extremely important to me, something that I'm passionate about. Um, The miseducation of our youth, the uh, disintegration of the black family nucleus, 
and mass incarceration and the emasculation of the male black male image are things that are very important to me, things that I've spent a lot of time and energy on. Now, we had talked earlier, and I was explaining to you how I sometimes feel lost when people equate uh, our incarceration issue when we're speaking particularly to black and brown people, um, quote-unquote mass incarceration, and we equate that to some level of white supremacy and um, that this is just a modern-day type of slavery. You you detail that so clearly and and, and without hiccup like I could attempt. So if you could first tell me about this book that you kept telling me about that Michelle Alexander uh, wrote that you said was the was the, the read that kind of oh, that you wish you had have read a lot earlier when you started your uh Well, book. I read it as, as I read it as soon as it was available, but I've been doing research on this for years. And so I, if I'm not mistaken, she wrote the book in 2005 or 2007, somewhere up in there. And uh, not shortly after that, I, I heard about it and uh, and I took it in. Uh, the name of the book is The New Jim Crow, uh, Mass Incarceration in the, ti- in the Time of, in the Era of uh, Colorblindness. And it deals with the fact that the oppression of the uh, black race uh, in slavery – Slavery basically never ended. The the ma- the mechanisms through which black people have been oppressed and enslaved have changed, and we we go from slavery to Reconstruction to Jim Crow to segregation, um, and then into mass incarceration, and all of these different aspects are just different mechanisms through which black people are oppressed and exploited. It's not, and and I think that, and I think what I said to you earlier is, you know, I started my research some time ago, just looking at a number of different factors and trying to understand the dynamic of some things that I saw taking place. Like, for instance, in Texas, which is actually the birthing place of the private prison industrial complex, uh, I saw in Texas in the 1990s this state go from 40 prisons total to over 100 and something in less than 10 years. Mm-hmm. Now, that state built prisons. That's not counting the privatization of prisons that came up. So there's a growing prison population over the last 25 to 30 years that has grown exponentially. And what concerned me is that the black demographic or the black population in the prison is not representative of the black population in free society. In other words, there's a disproportionate number of black people in prison uh, that that that's nowhere near representative of what we represent as a total. I mean, as a percentage of the population in the totality of the population in America. And so, it 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 on the surface it gives the impression that blacks are more prone to violence. Blacks are more prone to uh, being uh, criminal acts and, and criminality and things of that nature, and without investigating and looking at things more closely. And one of the things I pointed out to you is we have to stop, as blacks, we have to stop looking at things as snapshots. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I mean by that is we tend to view everything from an individual basis. And I think the analogy that I use with you, um, you know, that I use with you then is that we see the Trayvon Martin issue. 
as an individual act. We see what happened to Mike Brown as an individual act. We see every time we hear about a brother being released after 25, 30, 40 years in prison for something they didn't do, we see that individual happening. And we don't look at things from a panoramic and a uh, comprehensive perspective. And so what I try to do is I try to look at it all together. What kind of patterns do I see? What do I see? And what I see is the criminalization, first of all, of the black man. Then I see the environmental influences that create a more criminal uh, environment. In other words, when you study criminology, uh, one of the first things you're going to learn about uh, criminal acts of crime is that crime rates increase anytime poverty increase. Crime rates increase in correspondence to poverty. So if you want to control crime in an area, you control poverty. Uh, it's just it's just a natural part of it. It's not a color or a race, or a race issue. It's a poverty issue at, at, at its core. But what happens is when you have a system that controls poverty, white supremacy, they, in, in essence, control the crime rate to a certain extent. And you have people, and I agree with this to a certain extent, that say that crime is a choice. So these people, you got caught up in the system because they made bad choices. Well, first of all, you have to look at the fact that you have too many of us who, um, you know, too too many of us who have uh, issues uh, that we can sit up and say they don't belong in prison, they didn't do it. So that's the first thing you got to look at. When you look at people who are being released now for being falsely convicted, uh, the number that are black is extremely high. So we look at that. That's the first thing. Now let's go into the situation and where we're looking at, okay, let's look at people who actually did what it is. Now the first thing you have to do is you have to look at the fact that as a black man who is looking to provide for my family, there are only three ways that a man can provide for his family. He can earn an income either by working for someone else or working for himself. If for whatever reason that avenue is closed, and you have to understand that what people don't talk about is when you look, view unemployment in its totality, not in the doctored up uh, statistics that are presented uh, for political reasons, the black man is roughly over 30% of black men are unemployed. That's significant. That's black men that cannot provide for their families. Okay, now if you can't earn a living either by work, working for someone else or working for yourself, the next thing is to receive government assistance through some sort of subsidy, whether it's disability, whether it's Social Security, whether it's um, some sort of welfare program or whatever, that's the next line. If you've used that and you or you know you no longer qualified or you don't qualify for it for whatever reason, your only other alternative is crime, some sort of criminal activity to illegally produce an income that will allow you to pro provide for your family. Those are the three ways. You either work for it, you either get help from the government, or you commit crime. There's no other. There's, that, there's no other way. Those are the ways. Now, the thing is, you have a bunch of people who are unaware because we fail to create an entrepreneurial mindset. So people go out looking for jobs, and a lot of them don't even think about becoming entrepreneurs. And when they think about it, they think about it from a criminalistic perspective, selling drugs, stealing and selling, organized theft rings, all kind of different stuff they come up with that can actually be used in a positive way. But in order for a person to make a choice, that the choice has to be on the table. So the first thing that blacks have to do, so when I talk about, and it's important for anyone who is listening to understand that when I talk about 
any aspect of white supremacy, whether it's mass incarceration, the private prison industrial complex, corporate America, the political uh, arena, or any aspect in which it's being executed, it's executing it in every aspect of life. But if I'm talking about it, I'm not talking about it uh, from a victim a victim mindset. I'm not talking about it from a defeatist mindset. I'm talking about it from a strategic mindset. In order to be strategically prepared to engage your enemy, you must understand your enemy's strategy. So to sit up, uh, it's a lot of people talk about, you know, we're making the wrong choices and it's not them, it's us. But if you don't have a clear understanding of what the enemy is doing to you, you cannot counter their movements. Obviously, no matter how bad we want to talk and, you know, this doesn't affect me, that doesn't affect me, propaganda doesn't work against me, the private prison and industrial conduct doesn't work, all that sounds great until you look at the numbers. We are losing in every aspect. So obviously what they're doing is working. Now, do we have control over it? Yes. Or I wouldn't be on the phone. If I didn't feel we had, didn't have a control over it, I wouldn't waste my time talking about it because that's wasted energy. The fact that I'm talking about it is because I believe we can, we can dominate a bunch of things in areas in which now we are being dominated, but we have to, have, we have to change the mindset. Well, the first thing I look at when I look at mass incarceration it's just no accident that America has uh, the largest prison uh, population in the world and that blacks are the majority in a prison population where we only make up 13% of the nation's uh, population in totality. So there's an issue, and we understand that this started actually pro uh, profiting from prison labor actually started with convict leasing right after slavery and moving into Jim Crow, that was the thing called convict leasing. In other words, companies would come along and pay states to use their employees. That's how a majority of the railroads were built, was with convict labor. But it was called convict leasing. We're going to pay you so many dollars a day for the use of your inmates per man. And you send them out every day, and we're going to put them to work. You send a couple of guards with guns to make sure they don't make no runs or hurt nobody, and we're going to use them. And that was called convict leasing. And, and that was predominantly, if you look at a lot of the old pictures where you got these old dudes with chains and they work in the road, 90% of them were black. So they targeted even then black prisoners. Okay, then we moved up through Jim Crow, through segregation, uh, and we, we experienced all this. And then we fought for integration. We thought we won with integration, but we actually lost uh, a big, big huge, we, we lost huge, huge with integration. Uh, but anyway, we, we're looking at in the late 70s, the early, early uh, 80s, where they start the war on drugs. Now, the crazy thing is when they start the war on drugs, the crime rate was actually significantly low. The crime rate skyrocketed after the war on drugs. And part of that was because the CIA had them, was financing a war in Nicaragua. And they were financing that war in Nicaragua with drug money. And so they were – now, this they've admitted to. They, what they haven't admitted to is that they purposely flooded the drugs into the inner city for the purposes of destroying the people in the inner city. What they have admitted to is that they blocked law enforcement efforts to stop drugs from coming into the country because they were using that drug money to finance that war in Nicaragua, which was politically motivated. So we understand that. Now, you know, And there have been some people – that have, you know, some conspiracy theories that they have talked about, you know, the fact that drugs were purposely flooded into the neighborhood and what happens. And we know for a fact that J. Edgar Hooper did it in, uh, in the 70s. Uh, 
late late 60s, uh, early 70s, uh, to help destroy and dismantle the Black Panther Party uh, to weaken the black community. We understand that drugs is a powerful weapon when it comes to uh, separating it and uh, destroying any group of people in any particular uh, localized environment. So if you, you flooded into the major cities, those sit, those areas in which you flooded into, it's going to be a problem. It just does. It, it tears morale down. It takes the crime rate up. Uh, it, it, for whatever reason, depression uh, increases. A number of different things happen when you do that, and none of it good. And so that's what happens. But what we see that, that points towards white supremacy as well is the fact that not only are blacks being singled out at a higher rate than whites, because you got to understand it, blacks make up 40% of the prison population in state prisons and 39% white. Uh, on uh, federal prisons, it's 59% white, 37% black. But on state prison, which is where most of your people are going to prison, it's 40% black and 39% white. Now, that may say, well, that's not that big of a difference. Well, f well, it's huge when you think about whites make up 64% of the population and blacks only make up 13%. That means a significant number of our black men are not in the community. They're in prison. And so what we understand with them being in um, prison, there's a, a, a lack of black men in the community to show young boys what it means to be a man, to fill in roles. Young boys are being raised, raised by women, and that's why you have this, this uh, onslaught now of effeminate, of effeminate black men. And I'm not even talking about homosexual. Homosexuality, I'm talking about men who, have, who are straight, who, who possess a certain amount or a certain level of feminine qualities. They're highly emotional, highly irrational, very argumentative. Things that you don't find in them. A, a, a masculine man states his case and he lets his case stand. We got a bunch of men that got to have a last word. They the one on the thread going on 45 minutes will not let it go. You know, th th that type of thing that you're starting to see. And the, pro and the one thing is you, you study history. And 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 we, let's go let's go with the the feminine mindset for a minute. Let me explain how important it is to have masculine energy in the community and in the home. Uh, you know, this isn't about trying to determine what somebody does in their bedroom. I could care less. I don't got time. I got enough on my plate. But what I'm concerned at is with the male image, the black male image, and how it's presented and how it's represented. When you take a feminine a, a feminine man, regardless of whether he's gay or not. If he has effeminate qualities, women will say he's a great friend. They'll love to be around him. They'll say he's fun. But when it comes to him taking a position or a role of leadership, they will not follow. Right. And no other men are going to follow him. So the more that happens, the fewer leaders we have in the community. You know, mm -hmm. they, they, they're good money earners. There, there are a lot of different things that happen that they, that they excel at. But leadership is what we need. Without male leadership, without masculine energy in the home, without masculine energy in the community, without masculine energy to cover and protect our women, we're going to continue to fall. So that's, that's one thing that happens. So then, not, that's one thing, then from an economic perspective, is destroying the community. This is how. Uh -huh. Companies that were outsourcing their labor overseas have been threatened now with tax sanctions for doing that. But what has happened is the private prison industrial complex has said we can go into these prisons, we can not only use prison labor, we're going to create our own, build our own prisons. 
we're going to charge the government so many thousand a year, in some cases up to 40000 a year, per inmate to house them, to feed them, to clothe them, and, and, and to, 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 to cover medical, because they have to cover medical, all of the things that's necessary uh-huh. to house an inmate. We're going to charge it for that. We're going to do that. But this is what we're going to do. In order to make sure we keep our prisons at capacity, we're going to penalize them if any of their, uh, any of uh, our prisons fall below 85%, there's going to be a penalty for it, a financial penalty for it. That's going to give them incentive to keep the numbers up. Here's another way we're going to keep the numbers up. We're going to lobby in Washington and in state capitals that the laws are changed to to give more time for certain sentences. So drug sentences now are are, are carrying more weight. Uh, Weapon possession sentences, all these things that are going to be common in criminalized areas are carrying more weight. So that's, that's what we're going to do. Now, this is how we're going to screw up the economy within the community to continue the poverty issue that will continue the criminal issue. Because we are now uh, using prison labor to make furniture, to create textiles, to create um, almost anything you can imagine, it's being done in prisons now. We don't have to hire free labor because in prison we either get it for free or we get it at a discount rate, say 70 cents an hour, a dollar an hour, tops. So now we are, we we got this massive profit to the point now we're we're selling stocks on uh, on Wall Street and we're publicly traded. We we have to keep our stock uh, our uh, shareholders happy. So we're always looking for ways to keep our prisons full because that's our profit. But here's the problem: if I'm paying, if I've got prisoners doing the work, guess who's not got jobs in the community now? The people we were paying minimum wage to do the stuff, we got that being done now for free. So now they don't have jobs. So now we took your men and locked them up, and we working them, and we not gonna hire you. That is the thing that we're dealing. So now what we have to look at is what is the strategy. We understand the mechanism that we're battling against. We understand what the, we understand the chess move that they just made. What is our response? And what we've got to stop doing when is we've got to stop reacting and we've got to become proactive. Reacting is when you're playing chess, a reactive move is somebody puts you in check and you move yourself out of check. Eventually, you keep playing the game that way, you're going to get checkmated. You've got to play proactive. You've got to think about what they're doing. Think about what their next move will be when you make a move to counter that move. And so this is what we first, the first thing we've got to do is we've got to stop uh, and change our com- consumerized mindset. Consumerism is totally destroying us. We've got to change our individualized mindset. Individualism is destroying us. We've got to think collectively, and we've got to stop buying up stuff, especially out of other ec- economies. Imagine the economy being the collective of multiple economies. You have an Asian economy, an Arab economy, a Jewish economy, a, a, a European economy, and you have a black economy. All of these co- economies function within themselves, but they also function individually. Now, what happens is everybody has learned that they can rate the black economy by putting up businesses in the black community and by uh, by using uh, media to do these great commercials to sell blacks on spending their money on Jordans, on, on, on jerseys, on name brand. You got people who can barely afford to pay their rent walking around with $2,500 Michael Kors bags and Louis Vuitton and all that stuff because it's being pumped at them and they've been convinced that that's their status. That's how they show they're important. That's how they determine their worth. 
all of these mindsets that blacks have developed over the course of being over for so long and dealing with these inferiority complexes and finding ways to try to be accepted and finding ways to try to prove their worth, finding ways to battle self-hatred. All these things are being shown out in the way we spend our money. We've got to come together and collectively fund our own elevation. We can't keep begging the oppressor to release the pressure when the very oppression of us is how they maintain their wealth. That's foolish. They have gotten where they've gotten by oppressing us, by exploiting us, by taking advantage of us. Every uh, foreign nationality that come over here and migrate in, in, in numbers have already determined before they get here that they're going to bring their initial business to the black community because the black community will, 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 will support it. The black community will spend with any other group before they'll spend with their own. And so what happened was when we decided we wanted to integrate, we had all these businesses. We had theaters, buses, cabs, um, diners, restaurants, everything you can imagine. And when we started to integrate, the reality hit. We can't go. We want to go sit and eat with the white people. We want to go spend our money with the white people. We don't want to pass by and see whites only. So we're going to fight to eat in their restaurants. Well, what happens is when you fight to eat in their restaurants, you can't patronize your own. So they're going out of business. So they're selling their business to the Jews. Jews came in the black community in the 40s, 50s, and 60s and just started buying up everything. Why? Because they said, we'll fund your civil rights movement if you sell us your stuff. You know, we're going we, we, to give you places where you can go spend, spend your money. We're going to make sure everything you need you got. Here's the problem. We gave up all of that. Ownership is so important in the development of wealth and the building of economic, of, uh, economic floor and foundation. We gave up the foundation we had for a pipe dream. We thought being able to eat in a restaurant gave us equality. Equality is a relative thing. It's unreal. It doesn't, it's not tangible. It's not anything you can measure. It's not anything you can use. It's just a concept. We had something tangible, and we gave it up. And they've taken advantage of that. What the, what the Jews do after they exploited it to the max, they moved into other areas such as media. They bought up media, bought up Hollywood, bought up uh, radio stations, TV stations, newspapers. They, 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 they bought into that. They bought into the jewelry business. They dominate that. And what they did is they sold to the Arabs and the Chinese. So the Chinese come in. They set up what they know we want. They got beauty supply stores in every, every place. They got nail shops in every black neighborhood. The Arabs come in and set up convenience stores and liquor stores. And they come in and they build their economic. What they do is they take all the money. They rape the black uh, uh, economy and take that money back to the Asian economy, take that money back to the uh, Arab economy, and it never comes back. They don't invest one dime that's outside of their business into the black community. And so what we have to do is we have to take the $1.1 trillion that we have and invest it in us, invest it in new businesses, support businesses, but also find aspiring entrepreneurs in the black community that want to be a part of it, uh, of, of, of being an entrepreneur, and invest in them. And when you invest in them... You, you got yeah. some people that's wanting to talk to you. They, they're wanting to talk to you. Twenty five ninety nine. you are blowing me up asking to speak. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. One of the things is, I mean, I agree with what he's saying, a hundred percent. Everything he's saying, I agree with. But the one of the main factors that that um, we always people forget about is how are you going to do that when actually they are even in control of your funds? You have too many people that's afraid of losing their job. You have too many people 
that's afraid of not being able to live, I'm not going to even say comfortable, but how they're living right now, just being able to go to work, come home, pay the bills, just to make it to the next time. You understand? And with that, you have blacks locked in to where that's not going to happen. And it's only this one is- way. And I don't understand why our people are not understanding this. We need to understand this. That's only one way. That's only one way that it's going to change and that power is going to be taken. It's only one way. Brother, you know what it is. I don't know why we're afraid to accept it. We're dying anyway. We've been dying since we've been here. The only promise God has ever gave us is that we're going to die. So why are okay, we so I'm, I'm lost. I don't, I don't know what y'all... I, 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 I'm about to explain it to you. And he pretty much know what I'm saying. I mean, like, that's all the brothers, like he said, it's hustling, it's robbing, it's killing, it's all of this. Hey, man, these brothers don't need to be thrown away. It's a reason that they're doing what they're doing, number one. Number two, please believe, as he talked about the prison system, there's more to one angle that, at that prison system. The other angle to that prison system is get all of these niggas that's not afraid to die, and not afraid to kill, get their asses off those streets. Put them where we can control them. For when we're ready to make our move, guess what? The ones that's out there too in love with what they have to even slap at the master plan, and it will not happen. There's only one way power is changed. That's through violence and war. That's not my saying. That's what history has taught. Black folks will not gain nothing from America, unless we take it. That's the only way it's going to happen. I don't care how we vote. They control voting. What don't we understand about that? They control voting. It's no matter who you put in there. They're going to make it go the way they want. And if they didn't control voting, they control the politicians because they have the money. You understand? They have that money. Uh, I lived in a city in Alabama that... um. I was close to some important people. And I had two, three of these people tell me one of them before they died. The whole process of once they ran for city council, mayor, and all of this. We had heard it before, didn't believe it. But then another friend that ran and won came back and talked to us. Uh, After all that go on, they go to the little yacht club or whatever, do their little party with the girlfriends and the cocaine. During the party, he said, you know, they'll call you back to a room, all the candidates, they won. They call them to a back room and tell them, you know, uh, no, congratulations, this, this, and that. They're looking up at people they never knew. Come to find out these are the people that own the banks, that own this, that own that, that don't even live here. And they tell them, say, you know, we do business one way. And this is all around the globe. We only do business one way. And said, you got to let us know right now, are you a part of this business or are you not? If you're not, you can walk out the door and you're on your own. If you are, no matter what, we bank. And they snatched the sheet off the table. They said a table stacked two feet high. Nothing but $100 bills. They let them know this is business. So all of our black politicians, 99% of them are bought out. Anytime they're elected, they are bought out. We don't have a win. No one is going to. So the only thing we can do. Be willing to shed blood and let blood be shed. That's the only thing. 
do you believe that to be true, Bishop? We're getting like 30 minutes before the end of the show, and I want to uh, have the last two people to uh, ask questions if they would like. Uh, this is what, I, what I'll do is I'll, I'll read something to you. Um, okay. Uh, Frederick Douglass once in his speech, uh, where there's no uh, struggle, there's no freedom, he says, those who profess to favor freedom and yet depreciate agitation are men who want crops but do not uh, do not want to plow the ground. Um, you know, they they won't uh, they 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 want something, but they're not willing to make the sacrifice to get it. Now, I understand where he's coming from, and I and, and I agree uh, that at at, a, at some point at certain levels that bloodshed will be necessary. But I uh, I'm a strategic person. I've studied history. And it's it, it, the one thing that you don't want is what we ended up with after the Civil War, a bunch of free people with no idea what to do with their freedom. So right. you don't just say we're fighting without having to understand the real reason you're fighting. And the thing is, there are people right now who are prepared. And see, the thing is, what, what I want the brother to understand is there, there, there are two things that drive people to fight. They have a desire and a passion for something or they're put in a position where they have no choice. And see, we're at the verge of that being in that second position to where we're being killed off. We're being handled in a way. What you saw, Martin Luther King said in, in one of his speeches, I shared this with you earlier, earlier this week, he said that, and I, when I was explaining that there's a difference between a protest and a riot, he, he said that a riot is the voice of the unheard. And, you know, and I was explaining to you that a bunch of people kept on saying, you know, look at those idiots in Baltimore tearing up their own neighborhood and blah, blah, blah. And, and you know, they were really down on it. And I said, I, I tend to sit back and I tend to watch. I use litmus tests. I watch the media. If mainstream media is supporting something, it's I can guarantee you it's not good for black folks. If mainstream media is about to lose their mind because they feel like something is just awfully, horribly wrong, it's probably something that's happening that's positively going to impact blacks. I watched the coverage of the riots and how they stood up. You know, I watched Ferguson, and that was the beginning of something. That was something different. That's the first time in my lifetime where I've seen a group of people back down police officers. When that night, that first night that went down, they sent police officers home. Now, and, and so I said, okay. Now, eventually, they sent in the National Guard and all this stuff, and they got control. I watched, then I turned around and I watched Baltimore. And everybody, oh, they tearing up their own neighborhood. They they destroying their own things. I'm like, hold on a second. Y'all stop listening to what mainstream media is telling you is happening and pay attention. When in the hell did black people start owning CVSs? When in the hell did black people start owning nail shops? When all the stuff that they were tearing up belonged to somebody that wasn't black. They were tearing up stuff. They were costing non-black people money. They caused at least two Baltimore uh, Oriole baseball games to be uh, totally canceled. Now, the, re the, the, the in-house revenue for those are close to a million dollars a game if you got a halfway decent team. The television revenue is in the millions. So they were costing millions and millions of dollars on a regular basis. That was what was, that's what brought the expedient uh, right, that's what brought uh, this sister out to where she was able to levy those charges so fast. Because trust me, with 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 white whites in control, she would not have been able to pull what she pulled unless they knew it was going to ease up something that was costing them money. 
Now, that's not going to be able to be perpetuated on a long term without a plan. What I saw is that there was no real true black mature leadership to take that energy and make it strategic. They were just venting, tearing up stuff and taking stuff. But what it did, that cost money. And so what you understand is you have to be willing to agitate. You cannot, let me explain something to you. When the laws are corrupt, the laws, when the laws are corrupt, when the laws favor your oppression, you cannot break free of the oppression by remaining lawful. That's foolish. The laws are against you. You cannot win by, you're going to have to agitate. You're going to, Martin Luther King was arrested over a hundred and some times. Nobody talks about that. You don't overcome laws that are uh, uh, opposed to your benefit by being compliant to them. At some point, right, right, right. You you have to be willing to step outside of what is lawful in order to fight. You're not going to get freedom in a system that is designed against you without fighting for it. So I understand where he's coming from with that. I'm just saying that it's not simply just going out. It's the shoot 'em up, bang bang thing is not the way to go. But you got to be willing to die. The thing is, if you're not willing to die for something, you're not gonna win this anyway because you got to be willing to go as far as the other person willing to go. And if you're not willing to die, you're not gonna. Once you get out of your comfort zone, if you're gonna shut down, we're not gonna win. We've got to step out of our comfort zones. We got to stop thinking that our six figure salaries are gonna save us. This goes much deeper than that. Well, I tell you what, I, I, you got this little board lit up with a bunch of unknown numbers because they're wanting to know how they can get in contact with you. Because I think, you know, I have said it before that, you know, I, I don't, I don't like the whole we waiting on the leader, we're waiting on the salvation, we're waiting on this, you know, savior. Individually, a move can happen, but if I'm understanding what you're saying, that it's going to take a collective effort with the strategic plan before we move on anything, because otherwise it'll just be organized chaos in little bitty pockets. Is, is that what you're saying? Is that what, what you're I'm saying? What I'm saying is right now we have to organize. We have to, be, mm-hmm. we have to come together collectively. Uh, the first way we need to come, to come together collectively is in developing a financial strategy. Uh, and like you said, you cannot be afraid of what's going to happen. We have we have some issues that we have to deal with because strategically, if they decide to freeze us out, you know, I mean, all the way down the water supply, they control it. So we have to be mm-hmm. thinking ahead on what we would do if it came down to that. We also need to build alliances outside of the U.S. That's why we need to have ourselves declared as a nation. Because if we can have ourselves declared as an independent nation, then we can get a seat and a voice at the United Nations, and anything happens to us, we have a voice. We have allies. We have somewhere that, if necessarily, we can retreat to. There's got to be, um, there's got to be a strate- strategy, because you're talking about a people who only make up 13% of the population and 40% of the prison population, meaning we have men already incarcerated, which, you know, I mean, to be totally honest, if, if, if it really came down to a united effort and every black man in every prison decided we coming out, they're not stopping that. Well, right, you know, right, 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 right. So, so you got to understand that it's got to be an organized effort, you know, because the first thing that's going to happen if they determine that, hey, there's something really popping off, they're going to cut communication. The problem is we don't own any media outlets. We don't have any towers. So we have to have money. We need to start building and preparing. 
you got to sit up and we got to uh, centralize. We, what we, we want to do is minimize the loss of black life. But we must right. understand that there's a possibility and there's a probability that black lives are being lost. And for the people that are so afraid of that, you got to understand that two black people every week are shot down by police officers. Just because it's starting to get pressed, just because it's starting to get pressed, more people are aware of it. But this has been going on two officers a week. Now, if you take into consideration security guards and other people in authority, it goes to, uh, you know, uh, it goes to one, almost one a day. You know, people, I mean, and, and, and so what, we, what we've got to do is we've got to look at that. Now, we also have to look at the fact that we have some internal issues. We've got to stop killing each other. Right. And right. So we got to we, we've got to stop that. Now, the, the truth, truth of the matter is uh, that we, 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 we don't need to buy into the black on black myth, but we do need to understand that there's too much violence in the black community with blacks on blacks on black. Now, the black on black myth makes it seem like blacks the only one killing other black, you know, killing people of their own race. When actually that's just simply a cultural phenomenon. Most violent crimes are committed against people you know or people you are around. You know, most people, unless they are actual criminals that's going to rob a bank, don't go somewhere else they don't live to fight somebody. You fight people you know that make you that that, that you know well enough that get on your nerve to make you want to fight. You shoot people that upset you that, you know, I mean, all kind of stuff, loan money, slept with my wife, all that stuff. Nine times out of ten, there's going to be somebody you know. And the way we look at that is if you go out to the white community, 84% of all murders of white folks were committed by other white folks. You can go into the Latino community, Asian community, it's the same thing. So there's no such thing as black-on-black -black crime unless you want to talk about white-on-white white, white crime, Mexican-on-Mexican crime, and all this other stuff. So that's, But at the same time, we need to understand the value of the black life. We can't be hollering black lives matter and we in the community shooting each other up. Uh, right. Not that I... And this has nothing to do with me being concerned about how everybody else thinks about it because I don't believe, I'm a firm believer. I don't care how bad me and my brother fighting, you can't come fight my brother. So don't tell me what I'm doing with my brother. Y'all fight every day. That's me and my brother. You come over here and touch him, I'm going to touch you up. And so that right. to me, black, black people hurting black people has no validation on white folks coming in our neighborhood shooting us. So save that BS. Save that BS. Let me now. What? Let me ask. Let me see if this other caller wants to ask something. Fifty-seven ninety-five. Did you want to have a question to pose to the uh, Dr. Bishop to, tonight? Five seven um, Hey, how you doing? I just um, clicked back on. Um, I was just getting to what he was saying. Uh, I caught half of it, but um, I, um. Okay, yeah, that's a question I want to ask. Okay, if you want to ask a question, go ahead and ask your question. What can I do as a brother in the community? Because I live in um, Deerfield Beach, Florida. Um, it's connected to, you know, Fort Lauderdale, the next county. I be seeing a lot of guys nowadays. I made a, um, a little statement on um Make an story short, I make a little, I made a little statement on um, China on Fox's Facebook. She uh, had a video about guys wearing pants down, excuse me, down their ass, and 
And to me, I feel like that's disrespectful. What can I do in the community if I see little, you know, young cats, you know, younger than me, how can I build a nation of, you know, black brothers to join with me to stop this crap? Because Okay. Is there anything you want to say to that, Bishop? Uh, yeah, real quickly. Uh, contact me. Contact me. Um, you can find my place. Uh, just look up Dr. Rick Wallace. Uh, on uh, you can Google me, or you can come to Facebook and uh, find me as Bishop Rick Wallace, or you can email me at CEO at theodysseyproject twenty one dot com. Um, but to answer that question, uh, we have inner city programs where we're teaching people that work. The thing is, it's kind of funny that you meant mentioned the sagging thing. Um, you know, I'm not a proponent of sagging, but this is what I can tell you. Working with these young men, one of the first things that I discovered when working with these young men is we tend to jump on things from a superficial perspective without understanding something. What I, what the, I mean, it didn't take long. I, first of all, I understand where sagging originated. It's a, it's a prison thing, and it has certain meanings in prison. However, what's going on in the hood is not directly connected. What I find is our young black brothers have taken on a mindset that we're not going to conform. And so sagging is a way to say, I'm not going to dress like you. I'm not going to look like you. I'm not going to be like you. I'm a black man, not a white man. You're not going to control me. Now, do I feel like it's appropriate and it's respectful to women? I, I have an issue with it. But I deal with it different. I, when I see a brother sagging, the first thing I'm going to say to him has nothing to do with how, his, how he's wearing his pants. I want to know where his mind is. I want to know what's bothering him. I, know, I want to know why he's fighting in a resistance. The only way that they can resist right now is in the way they dress. Exactly. And, then you gotta, and, and so that's the way they're fighting. They're fighting in the way that they dress. And what I commend them for is they got enough balls to do what a bunch of us older heads won't do, and that's sit up and say, you're not going to control me. And, 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 and that is what we got. We got a bunch of youth that's willing to buck. But we ain't got no leaders that's willing to step up with them and show them how to do it right. And that's the problem we have. We got a bunch of young bucks that's ready to go. But we ain't got no old heads to sit up and tell them, hey, this is how you do it. I tell you what, you get with young brothers, you give them real male love, show them that you really care about them, show them that you're in the fight with them, show them that they worth something and they're about something, they'll pull their pants up without you ever having to tell them to. And the only love that's going to do that is not going to be none of this mama love. It is not going to be none no, of this sexual that's... love. It's, it's not going to be none of this, you know, we cool today and bad. It's, that's, where they, that's where the whole gang idea came from. These people who were left on the outskirts and did nobody else but somebody else in a similar messed up situation um, cared about them, fed them, clothed them covered them, and they were willing and they willing to die for them. I mean, the very first people that showed up to the Ferguson uh, situations and, and even after that, uh, Baltimore, were gang-affiliated people who were able to put their differences aside and saw something bigger, but they didn't show that. They, they, they still haven't really addressed that. You know, they, they were too busy trying to no, they, color they actually, black. They, they actually sit up. And, and and tried to twist it in the media, saying that the Bloods and the Crip had united, um, for, and, and, and they were going on a cop killing spree. And that wasn't it. They just came together and said, "Man, we got to stop killing each other, and we got to protect our neighborhood." 
that was the truth. Truth had nothing to do with going out on 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 a, a cop hunting spree. Now, what what? But what? See, they understand is now we just not gonna be able to roll up in there with free reign because we got cats that will act bad with us, and so we gonna make them look bad. We, in other words, we are gonna set this up so when we do have to go up in there and do something with these youngsters, people are gonna be on our side. It's all about the uh, how you control what's happening, the message in the media, how you controlling that. And those are things that we've got to do. We've got to create our own situations where we control our own media outlets, where we control the message. Those messages that are being sent out determine how our children think about themselves, determine how our children set out their future. It determines how people who may be potential allies view us. And all that matters when you're talking about strategy. How your allies view you determines when things pop off, whose side they're going to be on. And so we, we, you have to be strategic. You have to have a strategic plan. You just don't go out and say, we're going to just start going to war because you're outnumbered. So you need allies. You don't have the tools and the resources. So you need to develop that. You need to gain access to that. You need to know what you're going to do in this particular situation and that situation. And be prepared to do what you need to do. But, yeah, be prepared to go to whatever links you need to go to. You know, my, one of the biggest frustrations I have, and then I'll give it back to you, and if it's somebody else that wants to ask a question or whatever, whatever you want to do. One of the biggest qu- problems I have, I'm in the hood. I'm in there working. I have uh, a program of uh, you mentoring young brothers uh, called Talks My Father Never Had With Me. I got a program called the Identity Infusion Program where we're teaching children about the African heritage and, and about uh, the way we impacted civilization and uh, all the universities and stuff that people came from around the world to come to in ancient Egypt, I mean ancient uh, 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 ancient parts of Africa like Egypt, Ethiopia, and places of that nature. Uh, I also have Promising Parents uh, where uh, we're talking with parents, teaching them about uh, conflict resolution, uh, dealing with kids, about entrepreneurship and all of that. And I've been asking for support. Uh, since this started, and in over five months, we've raised two hundred dollars. Now, t- any, anybody that know anything know those programs are not going over for two hundred dollars in six months. And so, uh, anybody that wants to actually help, you can go to GoFundMe.com backslash Educate Black Youth and support that. We're in the community. The young brother that asked about being in Florida about impacting those guys. Get in touch with me because what we're looking is to build networks in each of those areas, train men who want to be in a role of leadership on how to engage these young brothers and their families. Mm-hmm. And so this, this is how it starts. It starts by people getting involved and wanting to touch lives. You know, it's not about pats on the back. We've done that long enough. Everybody want to get their picture on, on the news. Everybody want to be in the media and get their pat on the back, right. but ain't jack getting done. It's time to put boots on the ground. Yeah. Uh, I think my other friend wanted to say something. I don't know if you're there. Uh, Twenty five ninety nine. If you have anything to ask, now is the time to do that. Yeah, yeah, I'm here, man. It's just, uh, damn, it sounded like I was listening to me. It's a strong mm-hmm. point. Um, now the one thing I've never heard really laid down pretty good was uh about the UN situation. That's something you really caught my attention with, and uh, because we are always talking about nation building, we need to be our own nation. But um, like I say, the circles I be in, we never really, the uh, UN thing never came up. But that's a very strong point. I think that's something they really need to be driven home a little bit more for people to understand. As uh, as, as I had said earlier, 
point I was trying to make with them about uh, a black nation or a nation was, you know, we're not going to be able to do anything as long as we still up under uh, the rules of America. You can't do anything. And people, they think it's some type of, um, when we speak this way, they think it's being militant. Man, this is nowhere near close to being militant. You know, I got some brothers you can talk to that's militant. And what they're talking about is 100 miles away from what we're talking about because mm-hmm. it's straight militant. But um, also, uh, you say something about the pants sag, and I like that too because that, I, I deal with a lot of brothers with that. And um, that's never really a, uh, that's not a topic with me when I deal with young brothers and talk to them because I feel like if they pants sagging and a woman around or something, I'm going to just say something to them, and that's going to be the end of it, you know, for right there. It's too many more important things we got to focus on. Like the brother said, man, we got too many important issues that we got to deal with. The word about exactly. the past impact. Those are things that. Exactly. Those are things that can wait and there's things that are less important. Bishop, anything else you want to get? We got like maybe three more minutes and then I'm going to try to go Empire real, real quick. <laughs> All right. This is it. This is what I'm closing. You talked about militants uh, and talking about being radical. And I shared this with you earlier today, and this is what I'm going to close with. We need a militant sector. We need a sector that's willing to step out and do what's necessary. Um, and it's important. Like I say, everybody talks about all the work and accomplishment that Dr. King did with his peaceful protest. But what they are unaware of, because either they, they haven't been told, because obviously white America is not going to share it with you, and most people don't, don't do their research to really understand. Only the people who read Malcolm X's biography, or, or, or play any close attention to any real true research uh, is aware of this. But w- before that was ever the march on Selma, that was the march on Montgomery. And Montgomery had the chief of police named Bull Connor. Bull Connor sick dogs on protesters. He turned water hoses on protesters. He beat the living crap bloody, uh, beat them bloody, beat protesters bloody. And Martin Luther King that was saying, we're going down there and marching. Bull Connor was promising that it was going to be a bloody, bloody, bloody thing if Martin Luther King brought that mess down there to Montgomery. Malcolm X called Bull Connor and told Bull Connor, if you touch him, we coming down there and we're going to burn it down. The reason Martin got to march without any problems in that particular instance was because of the fear of what might happen if they did something to him. You've got to have consequence to negative actions against you. If there's no consequence for taking black lives, they're going to continue to take them. If there's no consequence for oppression, they will continue to oppress. Oppress. There has to be consequence. And I'll leave you with that. You know, we, we, got, we, got, to, uh, we got to do better. I'll leave you with this. It says, uh, those who profess to favor freedom and yet depreciate agitation are people who want crops without flying the ground. They won't rain without thunder and lightning. lightning. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we want things, but we don't want to put our heart and effort into it. That was Frederick Douglass, the guy that says that he prayed 21 years for freedom, but he didn't get it until his legs started praying. In other words, you wanted, he, he had to run. He had to run to freedom. You know, just praying for deliverance, that comes a time out when you got to put into action what you have. And so I leave y'all with that. Like I said, those people who want to support me, get with me. Those who want to work with me, get with me. But it's about action. It's, it's time to stop talking, start doing. 
Are you tired? Are you sick and tired? Are you just plain done? Well, that's where I am, and we're going to change things. Here on The Empire, we change by informing, organizing, and doing things that really make a difference. If you have an organization or a program that is for the betterment of the human experience, that's where we're going to start. To be a part of this movement, please contact me. I am The Empress Cooper on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or email me at EmpressCooperDavison at gmail.com. Or just hit me up on my website, www.TheEmpress.com, where The Empress speaks and The Empire listens. Listen, I know that change won't just happen overnight. But nobody's going to change this but us. The significance of what we were talking about tonight was about the level of unfair incarceration, regardless of the crime, regardless of the time, and it's only going to get worse. I think the bishop and Everett both spoke with us tonight exposing the truths that are there. The, The laws are there. The laws are the laws. And uh, each state is going to have their individual way of divvying up whatever the cost is. The system is rigged in such a way that it's going to feed itself. And so we have to do something different. We have to do something different. Just like she just said, uh, we have fed, uh, we've already bled enough. Like we don't have to have any more sacrifices of, of human life. It won't stop, though if we continue to do the same thing. The the definition of insanity is the expectation of something different coming from doing the exact same thing. It's lunacy. It it doesn't even make any sense. So if we think that it's going to be okay for us to keep saying and chanting and acting as if uh, our screaming that Black Lives Matter, that that's going to somehow suddenly transform into someone having some type of feeling about uh, the black lives that are being taken, the black men that are being incarcerated. There's a whole, there are thousands, but no hundreds of thousands, millions of black men in jail, whether rightfully so or not, that have no contribution to the move of people, whether they're physically in there, uh, economically still institutionalized, or even if they get out and have nothing to come home to except for the return back into the system. The people are making money off of our lives, and we're losing more and more lives just doing nothing. So, like I said, I, I, I this is my platform to bring people together who can actually make some things change. And if you want to do that, it's, all, it's just going to take you to move your legs. Let's get a little Frederick Douglass in here and, and, and do something different because we can talk about it until we're blue in the face. And as we're talking, people are still making money. People are still going to jail. Families are still being separated. I have always said I wonder what would actually happen if every black man incarcerated in every state prison and every federal prison decided to just revolt all collectively. I mean, you can see what happens on the outside when people have a plan, a collective plan. Now, I'm not saying just go against the government because that's crazy. That's a death wish and because you never show up to a, a fight with with nothing. But as a collective body, if we can have an institution overcrowded to the point that we talked about, then we can do something collectively on the outside that can make a difference holistically for the legacy of our children and our people. Until next time, the emphasis. This is that new wash featuring French Montana, Can't Trust Thoughts, produced by.
It's not the song I'm going to play. That is not the song I'm going to play. We are not talking about no thoughts on here. We're going to talk about something changing of the world. How about that? I hope you learn to make it on your own And if you let yourself just know you'll never be alone I hope that you get everything you want and that you chose I hope that it's the realest thing that you ever know Hope you get the pretty girls that's pretty at everything Million dollar cribs having million dollar dreams And when you get it all just remember one thing Remember one thing That one man could change the world could change the world All I, all I wanted was a $100 million and a bad chick Imagine did some Muslim nights and felt like that I had it Back on the mattress, staring at the ceiling Try connecting dots, but it's all making those attachments I'm talking dreaming so hard, some nights it felt like draft day You know, my... My stepbrother used to flip them bags outside the crib like it was trash day. No Kim K, but he bagged, yeah, yeah. But when you get it fast, money slow down, don't crash. With all the drive in the world, where you still need gas. Look, think about it. Close your eyes, dream about it. Tell your team about it. Go make million dollar schemes about it. Success is on the way, I feel it in the distance. Used to look up at the stars and be like, ain't too much that's different. I be shining, they be shining. Get you one shot, don't you miss it. What you know about waking up every day like you on a mission and I hope you learn to make it on your own And if you love yourself just know you'll never be alone I hope that you get everything you want and that's what you're Hoping that's the realest thing that you ever know Hope you get the pretty girls as pretty as everything Million dollar careers have a million dollar dreams And when you get it all just remember one thing Remember one thing One man could change the world 